Well, the characteristic of God that we are focusing in on this morning as a part of our Discovering God series is God is love. Ever heard of that before? Does it sound familiar? What we mean by that is that we have been embraced by a personal God so that we can live under his protective custody now and forevermore. Now, if I were to ask you this morning, how many of you believe that God is love? My guess is that our hands would go up. We believe that. Yet there's a huge difference between affirming a truth such as the God is love with our minds and teaching our hearts to live out of this truth. It's been said that the longest distance in the world is that one foot between our head and our heart. And this is certainly true for me. I cannot speak about the characteristic of God's love without getting personal. So I'm going to apologize right up front this morning. This is going to be a little bit more autobiographical message than you might receive from me. In James Bryan Smith's book, The Good and Beautiful God, which I hope you're following along uh, with us, uh, he speaks about the narratives that control our lives, the storylines that run through our spirits that can be false narratives that really get in the way of us appropriating these truths about God that we're considering uh, during this Discovering God series. The emotion, I think, that is most contrary or an impediment to experiencing the love of God in our hearts is not hate. It is fear. In the book, The Shack, William Paul Young just creates a dialogue between the character of the Holy Spirit and the main character of the book, which is a man by the name of Mac, who has been deeply wounded because his young daughter has been murdered. And Mac asks the Holy Spirit, so why do I have so much fear in my life? And the Holy Spirit answers, because you don't believe. You don't believe we, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, love you. The person who lives by their fears will not find freedom in my love. I'm not talking about rational fears regarding legitimate dangers, but imagined fears, and especially the projection of those in the future. To the degree that those fears have a place in your life, you neither believe I am good nor know how deep in your heart I love you. You sing about it, the love of God. You talk about it, but you don't know it. You sing about it. You talk about it but you don't know it. When I first read that, I said to myself, that was me. He's describing me. Somehow, frankly, in a way that uh, to this day, I don't quite fully understand. I grew up as a fearful child. Transitions from middle to middle school years were traumatic for me. I was full of fear and anxiety going from the familiarity of the elementary school, one classroom to the much larger and more challenging middle school years really overwhelmed my emotions. I feared failure on many fronts, whether it was the academics of the classroom or the athletic competition of the, of the field or simply holding on to friendships. I was anxious to the point of worrying myself sick. Now, fortunately, it was probably these very same circumstances that uh, opened my heart up to that message that God was madly in love with me. And so at a camp in seventh grade, I heard the good news of the gospel and responded to it in a way that the love of God was overwhelming to me in that moment. But for whatever reason, I was not able to get this truth into my being. 
throughout my teenage years and well into mid, midlife adult years, I battled with what I call static in the stomach. I often sensed a wall of defendedness between myself and my environment as if to say, this world is not a safe place to be. And when I encountered authority figures I admired and wanted to impress, I felt self-conscious and frankly inferior in their presence. The intensity of these feelings would frankly rise and fall over the years, but I was never able to have them be overcome by the love of God. Well, finally, in midlife, circumstances conspired to make my future in ministry feel like it was very much up in the air. And try as I might to get to a place of confidence that God had my welfare firmly under his control, I couldn't get my heart to believe it. And as much as I consciously pondered and I meditated on and read those scriptures about God's love for me, my heart told me that I didn't believe it. Fear was blocking my experience of the love of God. And as Paul Harvey says, you will hear the rest of the story at the end of this message. I know that the narrative that runs through the spirit of many of us is fear that negates God's love. Some of us perhaps raised in homes where God was used as a club, a, a way to keep us in line. God will see you if you do that. He will get you. If you do that, and fear can be a tool of discipline, and it lodges in our spirit and then gets projected back upon God. It's what I might call Santa Claus theology. Ever pondered the words of Santa Claus is coming to town? You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. He's making a list. He's checking it twice. He's going to find out who's naughty and nice. Santa Claus is coming to town. He sees when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows when you've been bad or good. So be good for goodness sake. Is that the narrative that perhaps you were raised with? Some of us were raised in environments where the very ones we expected to protect us didn't show up at best when we needed them and at worst became abusive emotionally, physically, even sexually. We might have felt unsafe throughout our lives because we've had a difficult time in believing that God could be in the center of our being and make things happen in a way that were our best interest in mind. Still others of us are carrying over our shoulders a sack of guilt and shame because we've done things that have violated and betrayed the very standards that we held dear. And underneath all guilt and shame is the fear of punishment. Adam and Eve hid in the garden from God after eating the forbidden fruit. So fear is the greatest impediment, I believe, to the love of God. John says in his first epistle that perfect love casts out all fear. Yet how can we bring this experience of the inviting love of God to provide a safe place for us to be? With that in mind, let's turn to our scripture of the morning. Two passages of scripture that I'll read and you can just follow along as I read. First one you find in uh, 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. This is how God showed his love among us. 
He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And then Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This morning I want to focus in just on one verse. That one verse that takes us to the very heart and center of the love of God for us that can overcome the fears of our lives. And that's Romans chapter 5, verse 8. See it on the screen. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So let's look at this uh, a phrase at a time. We'll take this verse apart. The first two words we see in this sentence are the two words, but God. I call these two words the gospel in a nutshell. It's the great reversal. But God contains the entirety of the good news. Just when we were expecting God to lower the boom on deserving sinners, but God. With God, it's not a natural therefore, but a miraculous nevertheless. I think of the prodigal son who squandered his father's wealth and away and when it came time he came scooting back to his his father he had essentially said to his father i wish you were dead give me my inheritance before you die but he squandered it all and had to come back with his proverbial tail between his legs and thinking he was going to receive punishment from his father what does he get just the opposite and so we read in luke fifteen twenty. but while he was a long way off his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. This man was probably the most surprised person on the planet <laughs> when that happened. In the first part of the book of Ephesians, it's the second chapter, Paul lays out an indictment against humanity because of our sin before a holy God. And if you were to only read the first three verses of Ephesians 2 you would have said, it's all over. We're done with. <laughs> We're not going to make it. But then there's that great reversal in verse 4. But God. So let me rewrite that section liturgically. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. But God. You followed the ways of the world. But God. You gratified the cravings of your sinful nature. But God, you followed its desires and thoughts. But God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. There's a line from the old musical Showboat that I think is maybe God's theme song. Maybe he's lazy. Maybe he's slow. Maybe I'm crazy. Maybe I know. But I can't help loving that man of mine. <laughs> Let's go on. But God demonstrates his own love for us. Demonstrates. Puts on public display. 
Where do we look to see in a way that is unmistakable that we are loved by God? How does he do that? We write poems about it and it can get very flowery. We may say in wishful thinking, well, I hope that there's a personal God who has control over all the difficulties of my life and can bring things good out of them. Paul says that God demonstrates, commands, expresses, and even proves his own love for us. Where would we look to be sure of that? Let's add another phrase. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. Christ died for us. Paul says, the unmistakable picture of God's love for us is the cross. John reaffirms that, doesn't he, in our text this morning. This is how God showed his love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and set his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. As I've said before in previous sermons, because of the way I am wired, uh, I tend to be an inveterate questioner. And one of the things I oftentimes question is this whole issue of look at the evidence in the world. How can we say that God is love? We have immediately accessible to us on a daily basis a lot of the evils that take place in this world. And so I find myself wrestling with this truth. And one morning in my quiet time, I was going through some of my machinations, arguing with God over this particular truth. And then all of a sudden, it was like the Lord broke in from outside somewhere. And before you knew it, I, in my imagination, was transported to outer space, looking back at the earth. I was on the Challenger space shuttle going around the earth. And I saw in my mind's eye a forearm and a hand the size of God carrying an oversized cross. And all of a sudden I saw this hand and forearm plant the cross on the earth. Just like a quarterback spiking a football. It was like God said to me, What more evidence do you need? One of our leading lights speakers from the past is a man by the name of Brennan Manning. And he tells a story about this expression of the love of God. 1989, he was speaking in the Chicago area and he had given his messages and uh, everybody thought he was wonderful, but he realized that what he was speaking about in terms of the quality of life was not what was going on in his own life. He put on a good show, but um, it wasn't a reality in his own being. But he had an adopted mother that lived in the Chicago area, so he decided to spend a little bit of time with her. Now, to understand what this 87-year-old woman meant to him, we have to go back to Pusan, Korea in 1952. At midnight, two best friends, Richard Manning, as he was called then, and Ray Brennan were side by side in a Korean foxhole awaiting orders. They were casually eating chocolate bars when a hand grenade landed in their foxhole. And Ray Brennan, Richard's best friend, threw away his candy wrapper, as Richard said, threw himself on the grenade, gave his friend a wink of love, and that grenade exploded underneath him. Well, eight years later, when it came time for Richard Manning to enter the Franciscan priesthood, he adopted a new name. This was the custom at ordination. 
And because of the sacrifice of his best friend, Ray Brennan, he had took his last name as his first name. And thus he's called Brennan Manning today. He wanted to do that because of the sacrifice that this man had made for him. Now let's go back to Chicago in 1989. Mrs. Brennan and Brennan Manning were reminiscing about after dinner about the crazy things that these two friends used to do together. But Brennan Manning was still stewing over his own kind of state of depression. And so he asked his adopted mom, Ma, do you think Ray loved me? And Mrs. Brennan's first reaction was to laugh, thinking that Manning has to be joking. Richie, you're such a kidder. She said, you say the craziest things. Quit fooling around. You should be serious. Brandon Manning said, I am serious. And then Brandon Manning said he saw fire in her eyes. Mrs. Brennan said, don't you ever talk to me like that again. Don't you ever talk to me about Raymond like that. You stop making fun of me. And then she simply exploded. Jesus Christ, man, what more could he have done for you? What more could he have done for you? After the explosion, she quieted down. Said, it's all right, Richie. We all need a little reassurance now and then. Jesus said, greater love has no one than this. Then he laid down his life for his friends. I might rewrite that a little bit. Greater love has no God than this. Then he laid down his life for us. What more could he have done for you and me? But Paul doesn't stop there. He ratchets up the cost all the more. So we return to our text. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul, in his context, says, well, it's very rare that someone would even die for a good man or a good friend, like Ray Brennan has done. But nobody would die for an enemy. That's unheard of. And what Paul says here, that while we were in a state of sin, while we were mortal enemies of God, Christ died for us. When we cared not a whit that there was a God in heaven, he decided to give his life for us. When we were in full rebellion against his authority and were asserting our independence, that's when God demonstrated his love for us. So unusual was this love that the New Testament uses a word for love that was not used hardly at all in the classical Greek of the day. Any of us who have studied Greek and know that there's many Greek words for love, know that there's the word eros, which means the love of mutual attraction. The word storge, which means family love. The word philia, which means brotherly love. But a word that was hardly ever used in those days was the word agape. And it has to do with simply a love that originates from the lover regardless of the worth of the one being loved. The New Testament had to use an entirely different word to describe this generous giver that is our God. And I find this truth absolutely liberating. You know why? Because it says that God looked at us. He saw everything there was to see about us. He knew the 
our capacity for treachery. He knew those thoughts that go through our mind where we want to do somebody in. He knows that we can violate our own most high standards. He took all of that into account. And he said, you're worth dying for. And what this says to me is that there's nothing we're ever going to discover about ourselves in our opening ourselves up to God where God says, oh, gosh, if I'd have known that about you, I would have never done this. He knows us through and through and yet decided that we were worthy of his love and grace. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So this allows us frankly, to get to the root of the issues, like fear, (laughs) and to be able to acknowledge that there are those things that I need to look at in myself in order to see the love of God applied to them. And because of this truth, I oftentimes take exception with a theology that says, because of our sin, we're simply scum before God. I love the hymn, Amazing Grace, but I must admit I wince a little bit at the first verse. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Do you think God calls us wretches? We can do wretched things, of course, and we do. (laughs) We are not worthless. We are unworthy, and there's a big distinction between those two. We are unworthy, but God has said quite clearly, we are not worthless to him. We are worth everything to him. The scripture goes so far as to say that God has provided an eternal inheritance for himself. What is God's eternal inheritance for himself? It's us. He considers us his eternal inheritance. We read in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 18. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. God has bequeathed to himself an inheritance from all of eternity, and it is us. That's how valuable we are to him. Unworthy? Absolutely. Worthless? Absolutely not. (laughs) All of what we have considered here about the nature and extent of the love of God is an assault on the fear that can block God's presence in our hearts. In a later section in 1 John chapter 4, the apostle John goes right after the fear that robs us of the peace of the love of God. So we read in chapter 4, verses 16 and 18, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God. And God in him. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have a confidence in the day of judgment. There is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. And we have to worry about that. Well, as I said at the beginning of this message, as clear as this demonstration of God's love is, breaking through the anxiety that was riddling my life was... A battle. At the time of my deepest wrestling in early 1986, the church I was serving uh, entertained a missionary from Beirut, Lebanon. 
And if you recall, Beirut in the mid-80s was a city in civil war. Uh, It was called the Paris of the Middle East. But the buildings were pockmarked with bullets, strewn all over the ground. It was a a very sad case. And after worship that Sunday morning with this visioning missionary, I was having a conversation with him. And he was saying that he was going back to Beirut in the next few days. And projecting my fear upon him, I said, is it safe to go back there? And he paused for a moment before answering that question. He looked at me in a way that I saw deep peace in his life. And he said, tapping his breastbone, it's safe in here. And I said to myself, in the midst of this anxiety I was experiencing, he knows something I don't know. He's experiencing something that I haven't experienced. It's not safe in here. I wasn't feeling that at that time. My walk towards experiencing the love of God in a deeper, freer way began by doing the hardest thing I had ever done. I had to admit as a pastor, one who was supposed to be living in the reality of grace and peace of God, that I wasn't. And my first step to connect my head with my heart was to go to a couple of confidants and admit to them that I was powerless over my anxiety. Whatever image I needed to protect of having it all together had to go. You know, it's very tiring to pretend. And it was my admission of the need to others and their intercessory prayer for me that I faced this fear and asked the Lord to touch me at the deepest place in my life that I could not get to myself. And of course, there's a whole other story to go with that that I don't have time to go into today. Suffice it to say, I'm at a very different point today than I was then. For you, some of the fear may be a a fear of aging, a fear of the ability to cover your mortgage, a fear of the culture that is harming our children. We need to find a safe place in here. And there's something about voicing those fears, externalizing them, and inviting them, God, to touch us at our deepest place that allows us to get to the point where we can say, it's safe in here. This morning I want to conclude with a paragraph from J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God. Since 1986, I've lived with the truth of this word. I've gone back to it many a time, and I commend it to you as a a truth that you want to live into yourself. I put it in the first person so we can apply it to our own lives. It goes like this. As a believer, I find in the cross of Christ assurance that I, as an individual, am beloved of God. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. Knowing this, I am able to apply to myself the promise that all things work together for good to them that love God and are called according to his purpose. Not just some things, but all things. Every single thing that happens to me expresses God's love for me and comes to me for the furthering of God's purposes. Thus, so far as I am concerned, God is love to me, holy, omnipotent love at every moment and every event of every day's life. Even when I cannot see the why and the wherefore of God's dealings, I know that there is love in and behind them, 
And so I can rejoice even when, humanly speaking, things are going wrong. I know that the truth of the story of my life, when known, will prove to be, as the hymn says, mercy from first to last, and I am content. It's safe in here. May it be so. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you. We ask that any of us here this morning that are dealing with fear in one form or another will allow you to speak to that fear through your love. Give us freedom to acknowledge it, to identify it, to share it with somebody else, to ask people to pray for us so that we can live in that truth that you want us to live in. That perfect love casts out all fear. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.